To ask it another way, if you could devise a, a genuine Christian litmus test, what would it be? What would show up in your little test? All right, so I'm going to read uh, two texts. They're sort of back-to-back. We're going to pick up in chapter 5, starting in verse 33, and I'll skip a little bit and pick up in chapter 6, verse 20. Chapter 5, verse 33. Excuse me, this is not working. Bad phone. Still bad phone. There we go. Sorry about that. It's for your good I did that. Actually, I promise. They said to him, the disciples of John, these are, these are the uh, traditionalists, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. They said to Jesus, the disciples of John fast often, and they offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. Skip over to verse 20 in chapter 6. And Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil, on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets." But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, look, excuse me. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, don't demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good. Lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out that's in your brother's eye. 
For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruits. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. And I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Father, we pray and ask that you be kind to show us great things in your law. Help us to understand it. Moreover, help us to want it. Be gracious, Lord, to show us your grace in the Lord Jesus and to press it deep into our hearts. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. There's a little poem here from a, a poet named uh, Wilbur Reese. I thought about reading this a couple of weeks ago and I almost felt like I did, and I hope I didn't. Anyway, here's how it goes I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep. But just enough, just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or to pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Uh, Mr. Reese is a thoughtful, good poet, and he's put his finger on something uh, pretty profound, I think. Uh, there are certain people who, of course, don't want $3 worth of God or anything from God. They've come to the conclusion that what God and Jesus have to offer is antiquated and old and irrelevant and powerless, and they don't want it. So you can, they'll just keep their $3, thank you very much. But most, or many others, who do want God often want him like this poem explains, or it's not, poems don't explain, uh, imagines, paints this nice picture for us. Uh, in small doses, when needed, for a little boost, to take the edge off, to keep up appearances, to fill the holes, the fairy dust of blessing that makes us feel better. Three dollars worth of God, please. We wouldn't mind a little change here or there, a tiny tweak, an adjustment there in our life, but nothing too radical. Just $3 worth of God, please. We want to take God seriously, but not too seriously. About $3 worth, please. And, and the problem is, Jesus doesn't come in that quantity. And he doesn't come in that potency either. With any of those conditions, he doesn't cost $3. Actually, the, the text makes it really clear it doesn't cost anything. It's all free grace. Everything he gives is free. But when it's received, it means the end of your control. And it means the beginning of a new life. The new life that Jesus wants for us, which is what's described in this text, is one we can't control. The new life he wants for us is one that looks like his life. 
That's the main point tonight. The new life that Jesus wants for us is one that looks like His life. And uh, we'll look at it really quickly tonight under two headings. A gracious invitation and then growing imitation. Okay? Uh, And our text, which is split here, is really interesting. I read a little bit from chapter 5 and a little bit, well, a whole lot from chapter 6, I'll be honest. Uh, In between, there's conflict. Basically, what Jesus has been doing and saying, uh, what He's been doing in bringing the kingdom of God to bear... Uh, really upsets all the religious professionals. And instead of backing off or trying to help them understand with a little bit more nuance, he drives a wedge right between the middle of them, keeps doing what he's doing. And when they're so angry in another book, they're ready to kill him. He goes and calls 12 followers disciples. In the biblical language, that means he's starting a new people of God, actually, a community. 12 tribes of Israel. He is reconstituting the people of God around himself. He's starting over all new, if you will. And what he's doing now is laying down for them what that life in this community is supposed to look like. Uh, You don't see this because it's not included there, but right after he calls the 12, there's this description and this long sermon Jesus gives is before a mixed multitude, we're going to guess thousands of people. And it's described this way. There were disciples, and that's probably many people that were devoted to him and following him, and those who did not yet believe. And, uh, you know, those who are just sort of listening in because they're interested. And what Jesus does is describe for his disciples what their life should be like, what it means to follow him. But everyone else was invited to listen. The same is true now. If you describe your, would describe yourself as a, a disciple, I don't think anyone hardly uses those words, but a follower of Jesus, he's going to lay out for us what that is supposed to look like. But if you're not, you get to take a peek at what it's supposed to be like. And I think that could be really advantageous for you. So um, that's sort of the context. And the first thing we see that Jesus does or issues is this gracious invitation in verses 20 to 26. And it begins with the blessed life. If you're following along up there, pay attention. It's really interesting. Um, Jesus used the word blessed four times. Bless, 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 bless. And I feel like a little old lady from the South when I say that. Um, I want to define that term really simply as to be blessed in the Bible is to be someone that receives God's grace and is happy because of it. Someone who receives God's grace and is happy because of it. Psalm 1 begins this way, first word. So there's a sense of being happy because you receive God's grace. That's great. That makes sense. What happens next may not make much sense. Blessed are those who are, follow along, poor, who are hungry, who weep now. You don't look nearly as puzzled as you should. Verse 22, when people hate you, exclude you, revile you, spurn you on account of the Son of Man. Wait, you call this blessed? That's what it means to be blessed? And he goes on and explains, To such as these, yours is the kingdom of God. You shall be satisfied. You shall laugh. You should rejoice that you have a blessing. There's both an is and a shall up there. You have a blessing that is true now and will remain for eternity. There's both a now and a future component to this blessedness. Understand? No, probably not. That's okay. Hang with me. He follows up this description of the blessed life with a woeful life. See this verse 24 and following? Four times. Whoa, 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 whoa. That actually sounds like a bad pop song course. Uh, Whoa, 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 whoa. Um, But he's not trying to entertain us. He's warning of judgment. 
And he's warning those who are rich now, who are full now, who laugh now, when all speak well of you. Why is that woeful? What, is, what should we be warned about or scared about here? Because this is what we think is blessed. Seriously. Look at that description. Rich. Laughed. Laughing now. You know, joyful. Full and content when people speak well of you. Isn't that what we think a blessed life is in America? It is. That's what we think a blessed life is. And it's woeful because Jesus is telling them, you've received all the consolation you're going to get. You're no longer going to be full. You're going to be hungry. You shall mourn. And um, this should seem upside down. Does it seem upside down to you? Thank you for acknowledging the question. Yes. And I'm going, to, I'm going to propose that the reason it's upside down is because we're upside down. That we're upside down. That the kingdom of God, which is what Jesus is explaining, is such that we're upside down. We think when we perform well, have life licked, everything's going well, and we're content, i.e. we don't need anything, including God... That's a blessed life. And Jesus is saying, actually, the blessed life begins with a recognition of your need. To be poor in spirit, to recognize, I don't have what it takes. I am not who I'm supposed to be. That grace in the kingdom comes to those who are in need and know their need. That those who perform well and have life licked... Those who are winners, in the end they will lose. Because those are people who don't think they need grace. They don't want it. They don't need it. So this invitation to the blessed life. And it is an invitation. This is great news. If If you're down in your luck, you're not a great performer, you're a loser, you're hungry, this is the best news ever. God wants you, has a plan for your life, plans to give you joy, and welcome you into His kingdom forever. Best news ever. But if... You're on the other side, and you're content and think you can handle it yourself. This is a warning that God's blessing rests on those who rest in Jesus. Those who cease from their efforts to be good enough to perform, who see their own need and come to Jesus for grace. Now, something you need to see, and this is really important, this is grace. That we can come to Him, whoever we are, winners or losers, if we really see our need, And he welcomes us into the kingdom. It's all grace. And what happens next is going to look like law. Okay? It's going to look like rules. Um, But what you need to know is the grace comes first. Everywhere in the Bible, actually, grace comes before law. Everywhere. In the garden. God has a relationship with Adam. It's grace. Then comes the rules. In Exodus, when God gives the Ten Commandments, there's grace first. He brought them to himself and made them his people. Then law. And the same here. Okay? And so, God basically, Jesus is saying here, when you're invited into my grace, you will begin to look like me. Grace leads to growth. Resting in me leads to resemblance of me. Invitation leads to imitation. And now let's talk about this growing imitation. Okay? the very first thing that Jesus talks about, what it, mean, what it looks like to, to be like God and grow in imitation, is love. Verse 27. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Look at that carefully. Who in the world loves like that? 
The only people I know that live close to that are parents. That's about it. If you look at that, it looks crazy, right? Pretty much no one in the world loves like this. And Jesus goes on to explain what love in the world looks like in verses 32 to 34. It looks like loving those who love you, doing good to those who do good to you, lending to those from whom you expect to be repaid and to receive back. That's what love in the world often looks like. In other words, there's a sense in which it's a very safe transaction. And Jesus asks each time in verses 32 to 34, what benefits that to you? Really? How does that make you any better than anyone else? Think that pleases God? That you basically don't put yourself out in any kind of self-sacrificial denying way. If it costs you nothing at all, if it costs you nothing at all, is it really love? That's Jesus' argument in uh, 32 through 34. And then he repeats again in verse 35 exactly what he says in 27 and 28. Love your enemies. Do good, lend, expecting nothing in return. Summarize. What does love look like for Jesus? That in attitude and in action, in the heart and in real life, love is self-denying, sacrificial, generous, and undeserved. That you are giving it to someone who doesn't deserve it. That is the nature of love, according to Jesus. And again, who loves like that? Again, besides parents, no one. Jesus says in verse 35, those who love like that are sons of the Most High, children of God. And more importantly, the end of verse 35, for He, for God, is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. This is very, very important. Jesus is saying to his people, those who want to follow him, I want you to love others like the Father loves people. Like the Father loves you. You're ungrateful. All of us are ungrateful. We've all gotten far better than we deserve. We're ungrateful. And to the evil that God gives jobs and children and daily joy that is not deserved to those who are ungrateful and evil. That's what God the Father's love is like. He wants us to love like that. That's how He wants us to love. Ours is to be like that. So love. We're to grow in love. One part of the growing imitation of being like Jesus is to love. Secondly, same text, mercy. Verse 36. We're called to be merciful as your Father's merciful. Children of the Father by mercy... We're only children of God by His mercy. We, there, there's no resume, there's no job application that you can qualify for this for. It's by His grace and mercy that He brings us into His family and adopts us. It's by mercy. And then once we're part of the family, our imitation of Him means we become merciful like He does. Now, mercy is really, really hard to quantify. It really is. Like, how much mercy is enough? What does that look like in real life? Well, it looks like verse 27. It looks like loving those who don't deserve it. Loving sacrificially in a self-denying manner. But what else can you say? What else does mercy look like in life? Jesus tells us. It looks like not being a judgmental jerk. Verses 37, 38, and following. 
You see what he says here about judgment? Judge not, you won't be judged. Condemn not, you will not be condemned. What Jesus is pointing out is that we often are very, very hard on others while being very gracious to ourselves. And he goes on and tells a story along those lines in verses 41 and 42 that we're really good at seeing other people's faults. I can see the speck in your eye from a thousand yards away. And I can't see the giant log in my eye even though I live with myself every moment. We're really good at seeing and pointing out the faults of others, judging others, while being completely blind to our own. I'm really good at seeing your sin, really bad at seeing mine. Judgment. You know what's really interesting? I asked at the very beginning of the message, if you were to devise a litmus test for what a genuine Christian is, I think for most people in our culture, the litmus test for a genuine Christian is someone who judges like I do. Someone who hates the same things I hate and loves the same things I love. Someone who hates the same people I hate and loves the same issues I love. You see that, right? I think you should be able to see that. If not, like watch like five minutes of the local news during this current political cycle and you'll see it everywhere. That's the litmus test for many people of what they think a mature Christian is. And Jesus' definition of that is almost the complete opposite. That it's merciful humility. This is from Isaac, uh, no, this is from John Newton. He wrote, when people are right with God, they are apt to be hard on themselves and easy on other people. But when they're not right with God, they're easy on themselves and hard on other people. Did you hear that? Those who know themselves rightly, their own hearts, those who know that they're God's children by mercy, are merciful. And those who don't know the depth of their need and what God has done to make them their child, they are prone to be very hard and judgmental on others. It's merciful humility, I think, that's one of the best litmus tests of what it means to be a Christian and what it looks like to be a Christian. There's some others. Real quickly, just you know, try these on for size while we're at it. Teacher, verse 40. Really interesting. Jesus uh, basically just makes a statement. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Well, you know, uh, you have lots of teachers. You do. But who is your teacher? Who's your life teacher? Who do you want to be like? If Jesus says, if you're fully trained, you will be like your teacher, who do you want to really be like? Who are you learning life from? And now everybody has somebody, maybe two. It could be your dad or your mom. Uh, I don't know how many girls have told me indirectly that it's Beyonce. Um, for some of you, it's some political correspondent on the radio that you think just got it right. And I'm not saying that any of these are necessarily bad, okay? I'm not saying any of these are bad. I'm just saying they're not the best. The best teacher, the, the best person to ever live, who is a teacher teaching us right now, is Jesus. And it would be really wise to pay attention to his words and to listen carefully to him. To stuff your ears with his teaching so you would be like him. And then there's another test. In verses 43 to 45, Jesus says, Take a look at what your life is producing, at your works and your words, that, you're, that you will be known by your fruit. That the quality of the fruit of your life will demonstrate what kind of tree you are, whether you're a good tree or a dead tree or a dying tree. 
And that what your mouth says um, indicates what, what kind of heart it's coming out of. Out of your heart, um, your words are, are, are produced. In other words, your, your works and your words offer a diagnostic snapshot of what your heart's really like. That is not cool, but it is true. It's just true. Uh, there was a pastor on the other side of the state. Some of you guys actually may have gone to this guy's church growing up. His name was Jack Miller. And for people that were, tended to be full of themselves and look down on others, he would simply devise this test. And I would maybe advise you to take it yourself. See how you do. For the next seven days. I mean, really, what's, what's easier than to control your mouth, right? It's a part of your body. You can just control it. You can just shut up, Right? Right? For the next seven days, do not boast. Even humble brags, do not boast. Do not complain. Even if it's deserved, do not complain. Do not gossip. Do not blame shift. Do not defend yourself. Anybody excited about this test? I talked to a guy who'd been doing this test for 30 years. He's like, I've only met one person that really honestly passed this test. And he cheated. Basically locked himself in his room for like a week. Uh, What ends up happening is you can't help but boast, humble brag, complain, or gossip. And then what do you do? Well, you start blame shifting and defending yourself while you did that. And it just snowballs from there. And if you take this test, what happens is it really does accurately show you what's in your heart. That out of the abundance of what's in your heart, those words come out. That your heart is full of complaining and blame shifting and selfishness and self. And that's what really this whole thing is about. This whole text is about your heart. Not just your speech or your thoughts or your love. It's about your heart. And how it's shaped either by love and mercy or by pride and self, and a judgmental spirit. It's not about your external performance, how you can act, or what you can do. This is really about who you are and what you're becoming. So, uh, let me give you an illustration of this. Some of you will think, what I'm saying is, you need to try harder to imitate Jesus. And what you need to know is your efforts are going to look like one of those minion cakes that people make. It's just like a, it's like a yellow blob with like a brown eyeball glop thing in the middle. Like that's going to be your effort to be like Jesus. If you're just trying by your own efforts, it's going to look like some of your Halloween costume efforts to look like Harley Quinn or Star Wars guy. You're just going to be like, ah, I can sort of figure out who you are. You're some Star Wars guy or Harley Quinn. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I can sort of get it. That's what our failed attempts to look like Jesus is going to be if it's purely an external act. He wants something completely different from us, for us. He wants an imitation that's a little bit more like this. Do you have those pictures? All right. Which kid is that? Who's that? Caleb. Caleb. Next. Who's that? Simon. All right. Next. Who's that? Jared. That's right. See any resemblance? Yeah. I mean, yeah, until my wife cut Simon's hair, they were dead ringers. And you see, it's really interesting, it's really important, and you got it, you understand now, but I just want to make it clear. 
Are these my kids because they look like me? No, that's right. I can find other kids that look like this that are not my children, right? If I looked hard enough, I can find other kids that look like this that are not my kids. These are not my kids because they look like me. These are my kids. These kids look like me because they're mine. Got it? These kids look like me because they are my children. That's a big, important distinction. We're wired to think, I will become God's child if I just look like Him and try harder. That's not the way it works. No, you become like Jesus by becoming a child of God. By embracing His grace that He invites us into. By becoming part of the family. And He begins to work in you in such a way that you become more and more like Him. You you inherit the family DNA, if you will. The gospel DNA that changes us. This is not about your performance. This is about who God wants us to become when we join the family. And we need that gospel good news DNA at work in us. The question is, I'm almost done, do you really want that? Do you really want that gospel DNA? Do any of you know what a contraindication is? Contraindication, it's a medical term. Yep. A contraindication means this. A specific situation in which a drug, procedure, or surgery should not be used because it may be harmful to the person. Okay? that sound about right to you? A drug or procedure is what you need to live, but it just might kill you or hurt you. So, what you need to listen to is very interesting and very careful here. If we go back to the very beginning of this text that we read at first, chapter 5, and the very end of this text, the end of chapter 6, you'll see words like torn, burst, destroyed. And at the very end, with this house that's being built without a foundation... It fell, and there was great ruin. And Jesus is basically giving us two very different, well, two very similar pictures on the bookends of ruin and fall and destruction. And smack in the middle of it is this robust, God-like life of joy and fullness. What's going on? Why is he doing that? Let's look at the details. Look at verse 36 in chapter 5. I remember reading this when I was like in high school and college and having no idea what was going on because it's really culturally understood. He's talking about a patch, okay? A patch. You have a hole in your jeans, you need a patch. And he's saying, imagine you, you got your patch from a pair of new jeans. You decided, like, I really like those new jeans. I'm going to cut a piece of cloth out of them. First of all, that's dumb. You just want a pair of new jeans. And I'm going to sew it to cover the, the whole of those old jeans. And what Jesus is saying, in effect, is... You're using something new, potentially me, to cover an old hole because you like your old ways. You want to apply me as a patch over your hole. This is what you need to know. I'm not going to fix your hole. Moreover, this new cloth, me, I'm alive and at work. I'm going to shrink and I'm going to pull and tear that hole and make it worse. And that's what we try to do. Sometimes we try to slap Jesus on like a patch on our holes without changing our lives and hope we'll make everything better going to hurt you. It's going to hurt you. In verse 37, he talks about wine. Putting new wine into old wineskins. I grew up Baptist, so I had no idea what this meant at all. Um, No clue. I didn't know anything about wine. But basically what Jesus is saying is an old wineskin has run its course 
it is no longer expandable. It's like an old basketball that you overinflate and it explodes, okay? An old wineskin cannot expand in any way. And new wine expands as it ferments. It grows. It has an expulsive power as it moves out. It's expanding. And Jesus is saying, if you just want to sip of me every now and then to make you feel better, to drop in, you know, to gladden your heart, but you are not supple. If you're not flexible to be changed by me, I will burst you apart. It won't work that way. I am far too powerful for you to be using me that way. And in verse, uh, end of chapter 6, lastly, uh, Jesus is saying here to those who say to him, Lord, Lord, but don't do what he asks. You can say all the right words. You can sort of fashion together a life or house that looks like everyone else's. But if you refuse to give your life to Jesus, which for him looks like this, come to me, hear my words, follow them and do them then you're doing nothing but slapping paint and hanging pictures on a house built in a floodplain, and it's raining right now. Ruin is coming. You're wasting your time. So Jesus is painting this picture of a full, joyful life where we become more like God, but he's got warning on both sides. And it all comes back to this. Very simple. There is no $3 worth of God. There is none. You can't have $3 worth of God. You, you can't simply come in for a little pick-me-up drink or a little patch and think it's going to fix your problems while you go on about your life as so everything else is okay. You can't run life on your own and expect Jesus just to sort of say, I'm okay with you co-opting me to make you feel better or to fix your hurts. Or as the poet said, to give you ecstasy, to give you warmth. You can't keep the eternal in a paper sack. Jason Isbell is right. You thought God was an architect? Now you know he's something like a pipe bomb, ready to blow. And everything you built that's all for show goes up in flames in 24 frames. We, we want to think that we can take the explosive power of the good news of the gospel and put a little bit here and a little bit there like magic fairy dust to make everything better. That we can use Jesus to make our lives better. But he wants to give us a new life. A brand new life that looks like His. He doesn't want to give us some blessed version of your own life. He wants to give you His life. And some of you are working really hard to patch your holes. Some of you are working really hard out there and you're occasionally dropping in for just a quick drink to keep you going. That's not what Jesus wants for you. What He wants is so much better for you. He wants you to step in. He wants you to hear the good news of the gospel. He wants you to receive it by grace so that you, thirsty and tired as you are, you would drink deeply of the gospel, of the good news. And that that expansive, powerful message would begin to give you a new life, a new beautiful life that would change you, that would make you look like Him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your kindness.